Hey there, we wanted to have a quick word before we get started. We started this podcast on a bit of a whim, looking for ways to share information during the first months of the pandemic that wasn't written because so many clinicians were reading everything they could get their hands on about COVID, and they didn't want to read more. It's been a great way for us to share really interesting conversations we're having, but we've got to come clean. We need your help. We've bootstrapped the last five seasons, but we need more support. We'd really rather not turn to advertising, which inevitably breaks up the conversation for listeners. So we're going to try first to ask you, our listeners, for donations. If you find what we do helpful, you can donate at our website, fixmoralinjury.org. And we'd love to give you a shout out. You, or you and some of your friends, or your organization can sponsor an episode, or you can make a contribution in honor of someone dear to you. If you're in a position to do it, we would really appreciate your support. Hi, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. Adam Beckman is a future physician graduating this spring from the joint MD-MBA program at Harvard Medical School and Harvard Business School. Adam was most recently the special advisor to U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. Adam is the author of dozens of research articles about healthcare systems and public health. He has led or co-authored writing in JAMA, the New England Journal of Medicine, The Lancet, and Health Affairs, and cited in the New York Times and The New Yorker. In 2022, Adam was named to Forbes 30 Under 30 for his contributions to healthcare and medicine. Adam graduated summa cum laude from Yale College. Let's have a listen. Adam Beckman, we are so happy to have you here with us today. Thank you so much, Wendy and Simon, for having me here. Uh, I'm just thrilled to be here with both of you. We asked you here because we read an article that you wrote with a colleague about never events in healthcare, administrative never events. And I would love it if you could explain to the audience a little bit about what that is, how you conceptualize that. Absolutely. Um, and thank you, thank you for uh, reading the article and engaging with it and, and reaching out. It's always a joy to find out that someone has actually read uh, what we've written. Um, so we wrote this piece based on a framework that the National Quality Forum introduced many years ago. Um, and, and about 20 years ago, they started talking about medical never events. Uh, these were events like leaving a sponge inside of a patient after surgery, um, operating on the wrong limb. And, you know, there's been a lot of work, as both of you know better than I do, over the last two decades to reduce the frequency of that type of harm. Um, but, but Dave, doc, Dr. Shoxi, and I uh, were also focused on a different type of harm that exists within our healthcare system. Um, and, and that's the sort of uh, not necessarily medical, but administrative or policy related ways in which patients are negatively affected by stepping foot in a hospital system. And we specifically focused on five that I'm happy to, happy to give a lot more detail on. Um, these are things like being sued for uh, not being able to pay your bills on time uh, to a hospital system for needed medical care. Um, these are things like um, hospitals that aren't paying their workers, uh, janitors and food serving employees, sufficient wages for them to be able to live on. 
And we bucketed these together under this framework of hospital never events or administrative never events, really to call attention to what we've started to say is this reality that hospitals should be places for healing, not agents of harm. I think that's a such a great characterization that all of us know there are these things that happen around the edges that we run into every day. But it takes stepping back a little bit to say, this isn't just unhelpful. This could potentially be harmful. So do you want to walk us through what each of those five are? I think they were really interesting. I would love to, sure. Um, You know, the first one is we say that hospitals should never aggressively pursue medical debt. And what we really mean by this is that hospitals should never be pursuing aggressive debt collection against patients who cannot afford their medical bills. Things like suing them, garnishing wages, denying care due to owed debt. And for this one, we're especially focused on patients who are low income, who have limited resources. Those patients that, that hospitals presumably, at least nonprofit hospitals, should be covering under their charity policies anyway. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, someone I may reference several times throughout this conversation because his work has been so prolific and, and outstanding is Noam Le- Levy, who's a reporter, a senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News, who I'm sure both of you has read his work and, and probably uh, your listeners, too. Um, you know, uh, he recently wrote about a Kaiser study where they examined about 500 plus hospitals across the country, a, a sample with diverse characteristics. And they looked carefully across each of these hospitals, looking at thousands of pages of policies and, and documents. Um, and they found two things that I thought were striking. One was that more than two thirds of those hospitals sued patients or took other legal action against them, like garnishing wages, for example. Um, and second, you know, equally concerning statistic is is that they note that about one in five of those hospitals, um, including public university systems, didn't post information that they could find about their financial assistance policies. And I think these pieces are so intertwined. It's, it's what you're getting at that, you know, a patient who walks into a hospital, potentially not by choice out of an emergency and leaves with bills that they need to pay but aren't able to pay and isn't able to even figure out what that financial assistance policy looks like and winds up stuck in this messy system and ultimately can have things happening, like getting sued, stepping back, that's wrong, you know, and it contributes to the theme that you all know so, so intimately and talk so much about around moral injury and burnout in healthcare. And, and I bet there's people, a small number of people listening to this who are saying, but hospitals have to make money. And I think one of the things you 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 put in this article that was really uh, relevant to this is the idea that there are hospitals that don't pay taxes as nonprofits, and there are hospitals that are supported in various ways for the um, work they do for people who don't have the resources. And so uh, it's not the same as me getting my car repaired and then refusing to pay the bill. I think that's right. And I'm so glad you brought it up because there are real concerns about, you know, the financial uh, uh, stability and sustainability for hospitals across the country. And 
and that's a that's an equally uh, important topic. Um, I would emphasize two elements of that without going too deep. One is um, precisely in these moments where hospitals have been struggling financially over recent periods is when Dave and I think it's particularly important to be talking about these things um, because, you know, a hospital that is struggling financially and makes a leadership decision to double down on their policies to go after debt from low-income patients, um, that's, that's not approach that we would endorse for getting the financial sustainability of the hospital under control. You know, and second of all, I think just stepping back, um, if we're in a place in our healthcare system where the answer to long-term financial stability for hospitals is aggressively taking legal action against low-income patients, I think we're in a really dark place. Um, I think, you know, there's reasons to, there's a whole separate conversation around, is that even a, a sort of reality that leads to financial gains that are meaningful? Um, and, and I'll sort of bracket that conversation, but I, I don't want to miss the, the point I think you're driving at, Simon, that there is a serious conversation to be had about the broader upstream factors in our healthcare payment system that are even leading us to a place where hospitals are needing to take steps like this. And I'm completely on that train. Dave is too, that, you know, we need federal approaches that are focused on reforming the underlying payment and incentive structure. At the same time, we don't want to pretend that suing patients uh, or aggressively billing patients who have limited resources for receiving care that's needed is an appropriate thing to do. So what's number two? Right. So the second one we talked about was falling short on community benefit. So specifically, we lay out that a hospital should never spend less on community benefits, things like providing care to uninsured patients or funding public health programs than a hospital earns in tax breaks from nonprofit status. And this is exactly what you were getting at, um, that many hospitals in the United States are nonprofits. Um, and yet there's some striking data, um, including I think it was the, the Wall Street Journal, if I'm remembering correctly, recently put out a number that 60% of non excuse me, 60% of nonprofit hospitals over the past several years spent less than two cents on charity care for every dollar of net patient revenue. Yeah, and what should be chilling to them is that there are some states that are taking action. They're saying, you're not providing charity care, you're not returning the benefit of your nonprofit status, we're going to consider you as a for-profit entity. That's right, that's right. And I think it gets to a broader question around, as part of our societal contract, in exchange for tax exemptions as a nonprofit, what should a hospital's contribution to its surrounding community, to its state, to the country be? And we, you know, we can have long and extensive conversations about that. Um, but as that number suggests, and as the New York Times has reported in multiple different instances recently, I think broadly what we've heard since we put this article out is so many different clinicians have voiced this, this feeling that they are part of a system that is so focused on the finances and missing some of the opportunities to be contributing to their surrounding communities. Do you want me to keep going? Yeah, absolutely. What's number three? 
Great. And I'll, maybe I can tick through these last three and we can step back and talk about them. You know, the third one is around avoiding transparency with patients about costs. Um, we say that a hospital should never flout federal requirements for hospitals to be transparent with patients about the cost of their care. This gets to the hospital price transparency rule from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And several different studies over the last uh, about year and a half have documented poor compliance with this rule. Um, the idea being that it's really hard to figure out uh, the, the costs, the prices, excuse me, that, that hospitals are charging for care at their institutions. And this rule takes a step forward in, in requiring some of that information to be public. And many hospitals, to their credit, have done exactly what the rule requests. Um, but a number of hospitals haven't. Uh, some have either chosen pieces to leave out. Some have completely uh, ignored the rule and not put any information out. Um, and I think that this is, do I believe that price transparency is going to solve the issues that plague our healthcare system? No. But do we believe that this is a meaningful piece of a of concern that when there's a direct rule on this and hospitals are choosing not to comply, that behavior should be called out? I, I'm always unbelievably fascinated by how complex pricing is in hospitals how hard it is for hospitals to know what they're spending, what they're receiving, what they're charging, how hard it is for them to do it, and how hard it is for patients to get that information, which is just another step beyond that, right? If it's hard for hospitals to know what they're charging and spending, it's, uh, it's, it's exponentially hard for patients to know, and it always amazes me. And I also find it incredibly frustrating trying, trying to explain this to patients who look at this from the logical point of view which is i'm coming for a service how come you can't tell me what that service costs and i'm so embarrassed that i can't more often than not um so it's just fascinating to me that that whole price transparency thing seems like it, it seems like it should be relatively simple and is so convoluted so i'm glad that you brought it up and to your point you know bringing this back again to the theme of moral injury of burnout of the challenges that clinicians faced i hear in some of what you're saying just it's crazy that when a patient asks me how much something is going to cost at our hospital, I have no information to act on, right? Correct. Or it takes three weeks to figure out what it is because it, it takes so long to calculate it. Exactly. Exactly. And the last two pieces on our list of five never events, um, the fourth is uh, that a hospital should never pay less than a living wage. So specifically never providing compensation worth less than a living wage in their indices that define this for hospital workers like janitors and food serving employees. Um, the data here is rather sparse from what we could find, um, but you know, one statistic is that workers in the healthcare and social assistance sector earned a median hourly wage of about $13.48 in 2019. And this is really getting at a statement, really an aspirational one more than anything, of how we'd hope that a nonprofit hospital is able to treat its employees. Many people call large hospital systems and urban areas anchor institutions, institutions that are sort of the bedrock um, for their community. And we heard so much during the thick early parts of the COVID-19 pandemic about the service of frontline workers. And, you know, when we have a hospital that's 
got employees that aren't able to meet ends meet uh, doing often very highly exposed or dangerous work. Um, that's something we wanted to call attention to. And lastly, the final member event is never deliver racially segregated care. Um, this is something that you can't state enough in this country. And, you know, we're saying that hospitals shouldn't deliver racially segregated medical care where a hospital is systematically underserving its surrounding communities of color. Uh, the Loan Institute, which just has an outstanding wealth of resources and information and work that they have done on all of these issues. Um, you know, they, they note that in about 15 U.S. cities, the hospital markets are racially seg segregated, which they define as, you know, meaning half or more of hospitals are either underserving or overserving communities of color. And that was in 2021. So, Adam, I'm going to ask you a, a, maybe an impossible question, but I... You know, I'm curious about the carrot or the stick here. Now, I'm I'm usually in favor of positive reinforcement rather than negative reinforcement. But when we talk about negative, uh, sorry, never events um, for physicians, there's an awful lot of uh, negative reinforcement if they occur. What do we do about administrative never events? Do we positive reinforce the good or do we negatively reinforce the bad? I love that question. Um, and I think that there's potential opportunities for both. And before we get too deep into the potential opportunities on the policy side and otherwise, I'll add two other caveats or important pieces of context. You know, one is some people have said, as I think we were starting to allude to before, why hospitals? There are so many other actors in the healthcare ecosystem that are engaged in troublesome or outright concerning behavior. Um, and we agree with that. We agree with that. Um, but the fact is that these practices are here and they're occurring and they necessitate being named and discussed and hopefully asking leaders of these institutions to reflect on if there is ways to change the second is around this broader point of sort of systemic reform. And I, and I do believe that for each of these, it's worth asking the question, you know, if Congress could pass major healthcare legislation right now that were to address these, what are the upstream factors related to universal coverage, related to payment incentives and fee for service and all these big pieces that might, if we fixed those, we could just address each of these pieces incidentally as well. Um, but if that's not going to happen tomorrow. To your point, Simon, there are carrots and sticks that, that people are trying. Um, and, you know, one way to start to thinking about it is at the state level, including legislators, attorney general offices, um, and obviously at the federal level. And we've seen instances of different strategies. So, for example, um, Washington State, the attorney general has sued hospitals for failing to inform patients about the availability of charity care discounts before aggressively collecting on their medical debt. Um, in California, uh, the attorney general sent, sent letters to hospitals uh, that alleged that they were not providing descriptions of their charity care policies to patients in their, in their spoken language of that patient. Um, and both of those, happy to provide the sources for everything we talk about today. Um, but those of those are, are examples of I think what you would probably call the carrot that, that are being tried um, because 
potentially other options haven't worked at this stage. Yeah, so I, I just want to be clear with the listeners that we'll put all this in the show notes, all of these things that we're referring to in the show notes, including the, um, the, the original article, the link to the article. So I want to, I want to th- just switch gears a little bit here because I think in our experience, doctors who are interested or medical students who are interested in healthcare don't often get interested in the policy piece, right? And so I'm just curious, what was your path to get to this point and to start going down these these bigger picture rabbit holes, if you will? You know, I think some of it begins, uh, we don't have time for all the details, but some of it begins just, I think, with the family structure I was raised in and, and some of the kinds of questions around social justice issues that, I, that, that we asked. Um, but certainly by the time I was in college, um, I was increasingly aware not only of the various um, socioeconomic factors that exist in the city I was attending college in, but also the tools that public health organizations and public health legal partnerships and medical legal collaborations could bring to that work. Um, I had the privilege of working with the Global Health Justice Partnership as an undergraduate, which is a collaboration between the School of Public Health, the law school at Yale, um, working with folks like Greg Gonzalez around access to hepatitis C medications in prisons. And I was very struck by the reality that the doctors we were working with um, were having such difficulty getting these medications on a regular basis to their patients who were incarcerated or once their patients became incarcerated. And I think there were various moments um, over the last decade where I've seen these instances where the power of medicine is profound, but it's also intimately tied to a person's ability to get food on the table, get housing, all these, all these pieces that people talk about all the time now. Um, and so Throughout medical training, both before I started medical school and I took a leave in the middle of medical school to work in the government, I've continued to be um, both really interested and excited by working with people that care about these intersections um, and found that these issues really matter to patients, right? Like I remember on my medicine sabai, I had a patient who had complex Crohn's disease. Um, but really what was on his mind was the fact that he had a sense of pride that he had always paid his medical bills on time whenever the hospital asked him to during every hospitalization he had had for years. But this was the first hospitalization where he knew in his head he no longer had the savings to pay the bills on time. And that scared him. It was what he asked me about every day when we were rounding, not what the plan was, how we were going to get him out, out of the hospital, but it was that. And I think it becomes impossible to ignore the ways in which all of these pieces are so intertwined as a person goes through medical training. Yeah, for sure. I love the one, one of the things that you just said, which is that you worked with some of the legal teams. And a lot of times physicians are not as willing to cross some of those boundaries. Um, but that it can be really empowering to do that because coming at a problem from two different sides, 
really can get to better solutions. Definitely. And you all likely know Dr. Don Berwick. I'm sure many of your listeners have consumed his work and may know him better uh, than any of us. Um, But I remember when Don said to me early on that his favorite work always happens at the intersection of different disciplines. And I think he was unusual in starting to pull those disciplines together at the time. I take it for granted that, you know, I'm a medical student who's also in business school, who's taken some time out to work in the government, who's worked with lawyers and public health people. And that's, you know, there are a lot of people who do that. And I have the privilege that that's a a possibility. Um, And I, and I take inspiration from him and, and many folks who have led those types of collaborations, because I think it leads to work that's um, better for everybody. Yeah. So I have one last question, I think, which is, if you could, if you could recommend any individual action to the folks who are listening today, what would that be? I think what I would emphasize is that people are powerful. You are powerful. And if you exist inside of a healthcare institution, a hospital, or a clinic, or a dialysis facility, whatever it might be, if there's a piece of these never events that applies to your system, try to find out what your hospital or your clinic's policies are on these fronts. And start to ask the questions of why is that way? Could it be better? Who has a voice to potentially make it better? And start to pick at some of those questions. And, you know, at the political level, of course, I don't think it can ever be said enough that um, all of these issues in one way or another are on the ballot box locally or nationally at different times. And there are various policymakers who have really exciting ideas about ways they would legislate or act on some of these practices and broader inequities and injustices that exist in our healthcare system. And my pitch, and I think Dr. Shakshi's as well, would be to use your voice to make noise about those elements. Well, I think that's unfortunately a great place to stop because I think that we could talk for hours about this. But thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It's been educational for me listening to the work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Wendy and Simon. It's been a joy for me, too, to be with you both. Well, Wendy, I always find it interesting to talk to other folks in the medical profession about their thoughts on issues about what should never happen. And so this was sort of the perfect example of that. And I particularly found this article interesting because we spend so much time talking about things that clinicians should never have happen to a patient. And so thinking about ways that the system can avoid doing things to people, whether it's, you know, at a high level or at a individual hospital level, I think is really fascinating. Yeah. And it reminded me of so many other conversations we've had, right? It tied into Blake Alcar, who was talking about the distress that he was in when he found out that his patients couldn't pay for his services. And the lengths that he went to and the research that he's done in that. And then it also reminded me when he started talking about the covenant that healthcare institutions have with society, it reminded me of the conversation we had with Richard Laquamont Mm -hmm. about professionalism. 
And an upcoming conversation we have with Walter O'Donnell, who's talking about administrative M&Ms, which um, is very interesting as well, sort of along the same lines as this. Right. I mean, it just keeps echoing back and forth and back and forth. And I love the fact that much like another recent podcast episode, that we talked to someone who is interested in talking to people that physicians don't traditionally talk with or work with. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we make jokes about how we kind of avoid lawyers. But the truth is, working together can be incredibly powerful to change the policies and legislation that we need to make our work easier. Yeah, and I think along those lines, I mean, there's a sort of an antagonism or a contention between physicians and lawyers because of the medical legal space. But this is not talking about medical legal stuff. This is talking about the intersection of medicine with legal work, as opposed to medical legal sort of, uh, you know, lawsuits and things like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's just a really fascinating topic of research, and I hope they do more of it. Yeah, I do too. Thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. We're a grassroots organization, and your contributions will keep these episodes coming. If any of the work we do is helpful to you, please give back if you can by making a donation at our website, fixmoralinjury.org. While you're there, go to the podcast page for all the resources we mentioned in today's episode and browse through the pages and pages of other resources we've catalogued. The book list alone could keep you busy for months. You can also help by spreading the word and encouraging conversations. Share this episode with friends and colleagues and use the social media links in the show notes and tag us. We'd love to see your thoughts. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thanks for listening. And stay well. Stay well.